Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. What matters most? What do we need to change? It's different for everyone. You're listening to Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Good women, great chat. Today's guest is an innovation psychologist, or to put it simply, a knowledge worker. Through her company Inventium, she develops strategies for success and has made it her mission to help people become happier at work. Dr. Amantha Imber, welcome to Short Black. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. Now, you are an innovation psychologist. What the heck is that? <laughs> so, it's, it's, so I trained as an organisational psychologist, which basically means that I specialise in helping people be better and happier at work. And within that, I help people become better innovators and also help them be more productive and effective at work too. Now, psychology was your background. That's how it all kind of started for you. I'm organised, annoyingly so, according to my husband and everyone in my <laughs> world. I love order and I love efficiency and I think your job is just gold. So do you have that organisational streak? Was that there before the psychology bent? Yeah, I've always been very organised. I remember I did this strengths profile and my biggest strength was being a time optimiser. So I'm very good and I think a lot about how to use time wisely because it's the only thing that we can't get more of. Now, there can't be that many of you around. It's a pretty extraordinary profession. Yeah, look, there's a few organisational psychologists around and, you know, they, they work in various organisations helping, yeah, generally like in human resources and those sorts of parts of a business. But there's not too many of us that specialise in innovation and productivity. I, I, I don't know too many others. Everyone constantly complains about being time poor. Really, you're the answer. <laughs> yeah, well, I'd, I'd like to think I'm the answer. Yeah, look, I've just written a new elevator pitch, I think. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> I'll, I'll, be, I'll be stealing that. Thank you. <laughs> look, I think for me, like what I began to notice in my own life a couple of years ago is just in this world that is filled with digital distractions, like everyone is getting notifications and pings and dings, like every minute it is impossible almost to actually stay focused on the task that you're meant to be doing. And if you're like me, like I'm a classic knowledge worker, I'm paid for my thinking and my ideas. You can't get by with these constant interruptions. Like the average person can only stay focused for six minutes before they do a just check of email or social media or something like that. That's crazy. Was this before email and the internet? Has it always been six minutes, do you think? I think it's it's a recent thing. So oh. it's just how technology has taken so over affected. our lives. We're all affected. Yeah, absolutely. And worse off way worse off yeah you think so yeah definitely when it comes to actually getting focused thinking work done you know we 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 didn't have these constant distractions in the way that we do now and when you think about the people that are designing the apps that are distracting us these companies get paid more money the more they hold our attention and the more they distract us so it's in their best interest for us to be as distracted as possible now on one hand an employer wants more productivity they want more bang for their buck and i understand why it's important for us to be able to manage that on the other hand 
I am time poor, I'm exhausted, and sometimes the distractions are fun. So where do you get the balance? Yeah, this is true. And the distractions are designed to be fun. The distractions are designed to give us this dopamine hit where we feel good, like when we're checking our Facebook feed for the hundredth time during the day. We're hoping that there's another like there, and that makes us feel awesome. And if there's not, well, maybe there will be next time. So it's this kind of positive random reinforcement schedule. Just like we see places like casinos, which is why that kind of behavior is so addictive. So a lot of us are dealing with this digital addiction because it's so fun. So you're consulting some of the big end of town as an innovation psychologist. What do they want you to do for them? Well, typically what we're doing with our clients who include companies that are thought of as very innovative, like Google, Apple, Disney, companies like that, through to businesses that are household names, but perhaps not put in the same kind of category as those innovators We're generally brought in to help make innovation easier and to help turn people within the company into better innovators, help them identify what are the problems that customers have that they're looking for solutions to. How do they think more creatively about problems? How do they quickly prototype and test new ideas with their customers? So they're the sorts of things that we're helping with. And as much as I'm sure many of our listeners don't really care about the corporate profitability and outcomes, what have you learned that I can take away? to help me not so much be more innovative or more productive, but more efficient and and arguably happier. Yeah. You know, most people's roles involve them thinking creatively in some way, whether it be thinking about how to solve problems better at work, but also at home. Like we all encounter problems at home that, you know, sometimes just can't be solved through rational thinking. And so some of the things that work really well for me, like in my life, because I'm, you know, always trying to solve problems, I guess, is... I think sleeping on it is really good advice. So if you're stuck on something in your life where you're like, what do I do? How do I solve this? How do I fix this? A really good idea is just to kind of get your unconscious mind, the stuff that's going on in your brain that you're not aware of on the case and let it ponder that. Our unconscious mind is an excellent creative problem solver and also a good decision maker as well. So I will often sleep on things and I will often use like I tend to spend the first hour of the day doing movement exercise of some kind and I find if I'm not just consuming stimulus all the time like listening to a podcast or music but actually just have nothing going into my brain other than just going on a walk I find that it's the perfect opportunity for ideas to emerge it's like giving yourself time almost to be bored because it's during those times where we're kind of just in that daydreamy state is often when our best ideas come to us and our moments of clarity come to us. So I think that's great. On the kind of quirkier side of things, because everything that we do at Inventium is is science-based. So That's like, the name of your company, Inventium. Inventium. Yeah, so that's the innovation consultancy that I started quite a few years ago now. And one of my favourite studies that I've read around creativity is a lot of people kind of go, well, I'm not a creative type, so why are we even talking about creativity? But the thing is, everyone can be more creative than they currently see themselves as being. In the way they approach their day, their life, is that what you mean? Exactly. Because I, mean, I would argue I might be innovative, but I, you know, I'm not that creative, although I surprised myself with some great ideas. Hashtag just say. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, there you go. Like, I, I think that with your job, like, you have to be creative. But this, this study, which I love because it just proves the point that anyone can improve their ability to think creatively. They had two groups of people in at the lab and they had one group of people staring at an image that was all about conformity. So it was like, you know, nine dots on a page that were all the same colour. And then they had a second group looking at an image that had the same nine dots, but one of them was a different colour. So it was kind of like what psychologists call deviant images. 
not in the way that we would naturally think of deviancy. Um, <laughs> not in news, no. No, no. So the group that were exposed to the deviant image where there was an odd one out actually produced significantly more creative ideas when it came to a problem-solving task. And that was just through looking at an image for a couple of minutes and then setting about thinking of ideas to solve a problem. Was there a chemical, you know, moment that made that happen? Was it a, the snap in time where they stopped thinking about something and saw something in a different light. So what it is, is it's actually an image like that where it's about non-conformity. It's priming our brain to go, okay, I'm going to think of things that are a little bit different. When we're looking at an image that's all about conformity, we're primed to think in a way that is about conformity. So just visual so cues. perspective, really. It absolutely does, yeah. It's like these powerful visual cues are actually like powerful enough to change our thinking, which I think is so cool. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. We're all very aware, gosh, you've only got to walk down the street, very aware of how people are so addicted to technology and the digital addiction is, is frightening. We're increasingly aware that it's a problem. What tools would you give us? Is there a test we can do? Is there a time limit you give yourself every day where you would say, hey, that is dangerous, etc.? Yeah, it's such a great question. And look, there are some uh, proper scientifically validated assessments online. So if you Google digital addiction assessment, I'm sure that Google will bring up some of those assessments. So yes, you can assess yourself. And the benchmark is actually very low. Like I've done some of these assessments myself and most people, certainly most people that I know would probably qualify as having a digital addiction, which is kind of crazy. But, you know, like I think, you know, for example, the average person would spend four hours a day on their mobile phone. About half of that time is on the top five social media platforms like Facebook and YouTube and so forth. That is a lot of time, four wow. hours. And people complain that they're so busy. So that's crazy. Look, I, I think, you know, the first step in managing an addiction like this is I think just getting an awareness around your behavior. Most people dramatically underestimate how much time they're on their devices. And now that Apple and other companies are they you know, time it for they, you. Yeah. They do they time it for you so you can go into your screen time app, Android have an equivalent thing. So I think it's really actually setting yourself a baseline mm. because you'd probably be surprised if you go in and look at those statistics and go, Wow, that's how much time I'm spending on these things. Sometimes I think it's not so much about seeing the danger line because you need to be more creative, innovative, efficient, it's actually finding a better balance so that you have a better quality sleep. You may have more playtime, partner time, personal time, exercise, health time, whatever it is. A hundred percent. And I think relationships are so important. Like I do a lot of keynote speaking on this topic of digital addiction and how you can do focused work. And after every keynote I give, I reckon I will get at least one person, if not several, come up to me and go, can you please talk to my partner? They're always on their phone. It has such a big impact on your other half. And then kids as well. I'll always have parents asking questions. How do I get my kids off the devices? And I, and I think the very first thing that you need to do, like if you're a parent and if you're listening to this, is reflect on your own behavior. 
because I know when I'm out at cafes on the weekend with my five and a half year old daughter, I'm constantly looking around at how other families are behaving and the parents are glued to their phone. And it's like, well, you're the role model. Change your behaviour first. I think that's really important. You know, I have to say we've adopted that rule at home and have had for some time. You know, mealtime is tools down time. I mean, unless it's an emergency, tools down. Like uh, This is yeah. a chance to talk. Yeah, I think that's so great. I remember I interviewed this guy on, on my podcast who used to be uh, the president of Pinterest, who actually, I think Pinterest were responsible for creating the infinity scroll, which is like the never-ending scroll that keeps us so addicted. And uh, he said that... It, we could uh, kill him, couldn't we? We could kill him. But now, <laughs> interestingly, he's the CEO of an app called Moment, which is designed to reduce the amount of time people spend on their phone. But something interesting that he used to do with his family, he's got two young kids, is that they bought, it's like a, a kitchen safe, I think it's called a K-safe, which is originally for dieters to basically lock away food. So it's like a timed lock, you can't break <laughs> into it for however many hours you set. And they would use that for their phones. So they would lock their family's phones away for two hours every weeknight, and then I think about four or five hours on the weekend to literally eliminate the need for willpower because it is mm. going to take willpower to stay off your devices, like whether it's just for dinner or whether it's the whole night. I'm really interested in what can we do to eliminate the need for willpower to help break those addictive patterns, if you like. And I think one really emerging area, schools are now taking phones off kids, you know, and they lock them away for the school day. But they're insistent that they have a computer. So the kids, while they're in class are just messaging their friends. Whether it's iMessage or FaceTime or WeChat, on their school computer, and the phones are locked away and everyone feels good because my child's not engaging <laughs> on in screen time. And you go, actually, they are doing it all day. Oh, I know. It's, all day. It's so crazy, right, because they're not addressing the root cause. No. Like the fact that they're probably just not engaged with the class that they're sitting in. So, yeah, just the Band-Aid solutions that you hear about in um, certain systems, like in education, oh, it's just, yeah, it makes me feel very frustrated. Now, what are you finding in business, uh, the biggest pitfalls for business managers, leaders, about how, how to better set standards and, and parameters for staff in terms of their digital addiction? I think it's really difficult. The problem that we see a lot of organisations run into is that we work with employees who... They want more time to be doing good work, but they've got this, these expectations from up above that like with emails, for example, they need to constantly be on email and there are these unwritten rules that like the quicker I respond to an email, the better worker I'm seen as being by my boss. Like these nonsensical Because you're getting to it and getting exactly. back. You're getting to it. You're constantly connected and online and responsive and so forth. But this absolutely makes no sense. Excluding people that are there to react to customers quickly, like if you're on an IT help desk or if you're at a call centre or something like that. But sure. if you are a classic knowledge worker who's paid for your thinking, yet your boss is expecting you to provide quick responses to email, otherwise they see you as a, a slack or lazy worker, that makes no sense. That is a recipe for bad work and bad thinking. So, so how do you change an employer's behaviour and their thinking so that the pressure on staff eases off? Yeah, it's again, like it's making them aware of these unconscious cycles that they are in. Like essentially there are these norms that exist that are completely unproductive, like these norms where you have to be, you know, on email all the time. But if we can change those norms, and that's what we do with a lot of our clients, we're like, okay, well, there needs to be time allocated during the day to do deep, focused, uninterrupted work. And manager, boss person, like you need to be okay with the fact 
that your team are going to be unavailable for like a couple of hours in the morning or whenever they get their best deep focused work done and almost rewriting those unconscious assumptions. So that's just one of the ways that we do things. There are lots of other strategies, but that's a huge one. It's how you structure your day, isn't it? And and the yeah. expectations of others around you. Exactly. Yeah. I, I've often said, and I think I learned it early on, on the late news in particular, because, you know, I was always jet lagged and I'd go to bed anywhere from, you know, midnight to two, but people will be on the phone and on the email before eight. And I would not get back to anyone before midday unless it was urgent. And I used voicemail as my tool and they would say, you never answer your phone. And I was on that shift for over 17 years. And I learned that voicemail was there as my assistant, not theirs. So I would listen to messages, but I wouldn't get back to people because it would be like me ringing them at nine o'clock at night or four o'clock in the morning. Mm. And I found that when I said to people that the voicemail was really there for me, the pushback I got from that for some time was phenomenal. So what I learned from that experience, though, was, and it couples with being a journalist, you know, when you... When you need to interview someone, you need to talk to someone and you open their front gate and you walk towards their front door and they answer the door, you've trespassed once you've walked off public space and into their space. So I always say to people, if people can't see the fence or your front gate, they don't know when they've trespassed. So if you don't teach them where the boundaries are, they will always trespass. And if you always open the door, more fool you. That is such a great analogy. Like, and, and I know in my life, I'm really clear on setting where that fence is. Like, for example, my voicemail is a recording saying, I don't check my voicemail, so text me, which drives some people insane, but people text. So that's like a few minutes saved every day having to listen to my voicemail and write stuff down. And likewise, my email has a permanent autoresponder saying, I generally don't check email before lunch, so don't expect a response. Again, just like setting up my fence. So I think you know, particularly for listeners thinking about how do you do that? Like, how do you be really overt about your boundaries? So you kind of avoid pissing people off as well. And preventing people from pissing you off. Yeah, absolutely. You know, because people don't always mean to take advantage, but realistically, people live in their bubble and they want an outcome for them. But it does take a while, but you do slowly educate people. If I think if you're persistent, and mm. consistent in how you set those boundaries. Is that what you've discovered? Yeah, 100%. And just repeating the messages. Yeah. One thing I find really curious, I think it would have been about six, seven years ago, people started ignoring email because who had time? You know, my husband's got over two thousand, no, 6,000 emails in his inbox notifications. Oh you see, I, I couldn't. <laughs> I couldn't live with that, right? I would just have to delete the dead ones or something. And... Then when, you know, people ran out of time, particularly CEOs who are very time poor, just everything sort of moved to voicemail if it was urgent. And now it's gone from voicemail to text. So a lot of really busy people only live in the texting world. Mm, yes. Yeah, so true. You so hear true. that a lot? I do. I do. But it's interesting with email, like my perspective on that change, because I'll get a lot of just random people emailing me, asking for all sorts of things and generally making demands on my time and also misspelling my name because I'm, you know, fortunate or unfortunate enough to have just a bizarre name that everyone thinks is... It's like Samantha, Samantha without, without the yes. S. <laughs> exactly, exactly. But I get all sorts of variations. And so my default used to be with email to just delete, delete, delete and not respond. And then someone said to me, um, it was Nigel Marsh. I'm not sure if you know him. He I've said, heard of him. Yeah, he said... 
I respond to every single email because that is downright rude. They have taken the time to write to you, so you not responding to them. It's worse than a no. It's just rude. It's assuming you're more important. And so I recently, a few months ago, I, I changed my behavior and now I'm, I'm, I'm a little bit obsessive now. I will take the time to write back to everyone that asked me for something on email and I'll just give them a clear no. Like it would have been a no, but I just deleted the email and that was me saying no, but just not communicating that no to them. So yeah, I've changed my behavior in that way. I totally agree that text messaging is, is sort of for the important stuff, but I also have just started to, I don't know, have a bit more respect for the people that are emailing me as well. Do you get some help with how you manage your emails? Because like you, you ran a business, you started on your own, now you've got nearly 20 people working for you. I mean, that's a pretty big, small, medium business. Yes. Right? So you delegate well, is that the key? I do. Yeah, yeah. I Once I got a taste for delegation, which was hard for me because I'm a control freak, I realised how good delegation was. And so I think, it's, you know, if, if you recruit good people, then delegation becomes a whole lot easier. So I am now, I think, an excellent delegator. Makes a huge difference. That relationship with your EA, how do you find the best executive or personal assistant? What what are your measures of success in that area? Oh gosh, it's so hard. Um, I I've either recruited terrible ones or I've recruited ones that are so good that I have to promote them. And interestingly, Mish, who's now the CEO of Inventium, started as my EA back six years ago. And she actually, I mean, she was working in marketing roles and and sort of roles that required a different sort of set of experience to an EA, but she wanted to come in at the EA level because you learn so much about a business when you're working as an EA and then she just worked her way up incredibly quickly. So yeah, having someone who is clever and passionate and has no ego, like nothing is below them. I think those are the the key things that have that I've found work really well in an EA. And that's a must-have across the board for all your staff, isn't it? You've got to drop the ego at the door. Look, I think ego and innovation don't go. To be a good innovator, you need to have humility about you because if you're humble, then you think there's always more than I can learn and always more ways that I can grow. But if you've got an ego, you don't think that way. And so where's the growth going to come from? So that's critical for us. As a businesswoman and business owner, you introduced unlimited paid leave some time ago and was surprised that it received the feedback that it did and also the headlines. What was the reasoning behind that? So the reason behind introducing unlimited paid leave was to basically address the inequality that I felt was happening at Inventium and, and more broadly in, in businesses that don't pay overtime and don't pay by the hour. So in management consulting, which is our industry Leave is capped at four weeks for a full-time worker and hours are essentially uncapped. And in most management consultancies, consultants would work, you know, 60, 80-hour weeks. And that fundamentally seems quite unfair. And certainly the problem that I was trying to solve at Inventium is just people's lives and work and, you know, hours that they were doing is just out of whack. Like people travel a lot at Inventium for the work that we do. So I thought it would seem a whole lot fair, fairer given that hours are uncapped well what if leave was uncapped and what if we actually treat people like adults to go manage your working life and your non-working life with all this autonomy and as long as you deliver the outcomes required for the business then you're yeah, happy that's exactly right what happened once you introduced that uh so people were pretty excited about it as you can imagine <laughs> yeah but now three years on because we've been doing it for three and a half years now so the average amount of leave taken is about five and a half weeks so i myself will probably take about six weeks leave per year. So it's kind of plateaued out at that. Um, that feels like it's the optimal balance for most people. Some take more, some take less, but it works really well. Yeah. And the business, you know, remains profitable and successful. 
Now, you were inducted into the Australian Businesswoman's Hall of Fame in 2016. What was that for and how did it make you feel? <laughs> what was that for? Yeah. I, I, I guess it was just doing the stuff that I do. What a funny question. How did it make me feel? Well, you know, on paper yeah. it makes sense. But at the time, <laughs> you know, business women, everyone I've interviewed has really struggled with the imposter syndrome. Yep. Did yep. you? Yeah, 100%. And even I, I wrote um, an article about this recently, actually. I was recently named by AFR, one of the 100 women of influence. And I got the email and I had this moment where I'm like, I think I'm on the wrong database. Like, I think <laughs> they've just attributed this email to the wrong person. And I kind of had to reread it and check. And yeah, it's so funny because I remember very early on having imposter syndrome. I remember when I was like 21 years old and I just sort of finished my psych undergrad and I was applying to do the doctorate of organizational psychology at Monash. And I remember getting the call over summer that I'd been accepted into the program. And I remember for the first few months of being in that program, I thought that admin had stuffed up and that I wasn't meant to be there. So I I just have very early memories of imposter syndrome. I think I read this great blog post by Seth Godin that confidence is not something that eventually comes to you with more and more achievement. It's that something that you choose. And that had a big impact on me because it's like, well, it's it's kind of my choice whether I feel like an imposter or actually whether I go, no, I got this. I've earned it. I've earned it. Yeah. One of the things I love about you and your presentation style is you're very down to words and you've got a lovely conversational tone. You speak in everyday language that people get. What sorts of people, you know, knock on the door and, and hire you? Is it always just the business end of town? Yeah, it's um, it's generally people that are doing something with business, but we certainly do get a lot of smaller businesses now. Like now that we're moving more into the productivity kind of space, got this program called our Workday Reinvention Program, which is all about how people can reinvent their workday based on principles from psychology and how our brain works. We're getting more individuals contacting us that just want to work more effectively and use their time more wisely, whether it's because they're super ambitious in their career or whether it's because they actually want to work shorter hours and do their job in less time so they can spend more time at home with their family. So we're kind of seeing a lot of that at the moment. I think one of the more unusual aspects I found in your approach at this conference I saw you speak at recently, was your insistence that you share generously. And that included your presentation. Now, you know, if you go to a conference, a lot of people, you're paid to present, you're paid for your intel and and all the IP that you bring to the table. What what makes you want to share that so generously without any get back? Yeah, it's a good question. Really early on when I started Inventium, I met up with someone else who was also an innovation consultant. And I was in the early months of setting up Inventium and, you know, I had this lawyer who was like, protect everything, copyrighted, trademark, blah, blah, blah. And I was talking to this guy and he's like, look, you can operate from one of two mindsets, Amanda. You can operate from a mindset of plenty where there's plenty of work for everyone and don't get caught up with what the lawyer's telling you because it just doesn't matter. Or you can operate from a mindset of scarcity where you protect, protect, protect and assume that they're like not... I'm in grade two, that exam time, you know, my yeah. arms around my homework and that's all the exact, tests. Isn't that true? Oh, yeah, my God. That's I the remember. visual for yes, me. Yes, yes, totally. And so that conversation fundamentally made me go, I'm always going to operate from a mindset of plenty with Inventium because it's true. There is plenty of work for everyone. There are plenty of businesses that want to be more innovative. There are plenty of people that want to be more productive. And so with Share Generously, which was a value within Inventium for many, many years until it just became part of what we do. So it's not actually a formal value anymore. It's like the more people that know this stuff, the better. And if they're paying us or not, 
I don't really care because I'm in it to have impact. I'm not in it to make money. The money is just a side benefit. So that's where that came from. And you've done well from it. Yeah. But if I'm not from a business and I want to pick up some tips and skills, um, what do I do? Yeah, I, you can Google my name, Amantha Imba. I write for all sorts of publications from the Financial Review to Entrepreneur to Fast Company to HBR. I write a lot about the stuff that I'm learning and I talk a lot about it on the podcast, How I Work, where I interview people and also share the things that I'm learning about how to have a more productive and better life. So I share in ways that are absolutely free to consume a lot of the time. What have you learned recently? Oh, what have I learned recently? Hmm. You know, being an academic yeah. as well as a business owner, sometimes it's very easy to, when you're always dispensing information, sharing your knowledge and wealth of experience and exposure yeah. in the marketplace, ego must creep in and then humility goes out the door. Yeah, 100%. Well, let's see. Um, at the moment, I'm just about to finish a book called Ultra Learning, which is a book by Scott Young. He talks about what are the ways to actually improve learning. And one of the things I've learned recently, and I'm trying to apply because I've got a couple of learning projects. Um, I want to learn how to draw portraits and I want to relearn piano. And so one of the, the principles that he talks about in this book is the importance of directness when you're learning. So the more directly you can apply what you're learning, like actually do it while you're learning it, the better the outcome is. And you might hear that and go, well, of course. But then look at how schools are set up. Look at how universities are set up. Look at how the average corporate training program is set up. None of it is direct. It is all sitting in a classroom learning stuff theoretically. And so, you know, with these two learning projects that I've got, it is absolutely going, okay, what is the most direct way to do it? Like with portrait drawing, actually drawing the portrait on, you know, slightly transparent paper and then putting that up against a photo of an actual person. And you can like very directly kind of get feedback on, what's happening there you know with piano obviously that's a, a bit more of a, an obvious example about how to learn directly but um yeah that was something that, that I learned that I'm like man the education system is so messed up because it completely misses that very fundamental principle of learning. I think Inventium needs to work for everyone and you just need to offer yourself <laughs> endlessly give up your family life your personal life your professional <laughs> life is all we need. Amantha Imber what a joy a fascinating human being you are and thanks so much for spending some time with Short Black. Oh thank you so much. You have been listening to Short Black, a 10 News First podcast for 10 Speaks. To make sure you don't miss any of our great chats, subscribe in your favourite podcast app. Hey, when you've got a moment, check out some of our 10 Speaks podcasts. Short Black with me, Sandra Sully. Hammer it home with me, Baz Dubois. I'm Matt Burke, and you've been listening to 10 Speaks Rugby podcast. I am the hack, I'm Hugh Rimmington. And with me is the Professor Peter Van Onselen. You're looking splendid. You relax, Peter. Have you missed me? Next time you're looking for a podcast, head to your favourite podcast player and search 10 Speaks. And give us a five-star rate and review while you're there. What do Tom Jones, Borat and Eddie Munster all have in common? You can hear them all on the Starstruck with Angela Bishop podcast. I'll give you all the behind-the-scenes goss on what went on with some of my most fascinating interviews over the years. Find it wherever you get your podcasts. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. 
Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.